Well, good afternoon, and uh, let me say, first of all, I appreciate that you being here, and it shows your love for and interest uh, in God's Word, and uh, I can't think of a book of the Bible that is more fascinating uh, than the book of Daniel. It's also a book that's incredibly challenging, uh, not so much the first six chapters, uh, but 7 through 12 are a bear, and uh, one that uh, treks their way through those chapters does so with much fear. Uh, and trepidation. One of the things when I taught through Daniel that I did was I listened to Alistair Begg's verse-by-verse study through the book of Daniel. And when he got into the apocalyptic section, he talked about uh, one morning to his church that uh, he would be studying through Daniel and his head would begin to hurt so badly he would have to go and lay down and rest uh, before he could get back up and start working through it again. And it got worse and worse and worse as he was working his way through 8 and 9 and 10 and especially 11. And I can still remember calling him. I, w- I had spoken up in Asheville uh, area uh, for a, a preaching workshop, and I was driving back home, and I thought I'd just give him a call and tell him how much I'd appreciated Uh, his series through Daniel, but also how much I appreciated his honesty about how challenging and difficult uh, some of those chapters were. And so I got him on the phone and I said, well, I just want you to know uh, you blessed me uh, tremendously, especially even how you've humbly, uh, but also with great courage, have uh, attempted to work your way through those apocalyptic chapters. And how's it going? Because he had not quite finished the series And he said, well, again, I've just gotten out of bed because uh, it was such a difficult assignment. And so I was very, very grateful uh, for his uh, response. But if you in the future have a chance to teach through the book, I would commend uh, his series to you. I think you would be greatly blessed uh, by it. Uh, I especially liked Gradanus' commentary. Uh, It was very, very helpful to me. Uh, Dale Davis Uh, wrote a commentary on Daniel in the Bible Speaks Today series, and it is superbly done. So that would be another book that I would commend to you uh, as you work your way through this book. Now, Dr. Shaddix very kindly said I could pick any chapter that I wanted to pick to speak from this uh, afternoon. And I'm sure you said, well, you should have manned up and done something through 7 through 12. Well, I'm manning up and going to chapter 1. So if you would, (laughs) take your Bible and join me there in chapter 1. And uh, I'll kind of talk through the sermon. I'm going to preach a sermon to you, but I'll kind of share some thoughts along the way that will maybe be of some help to you. So it kind of be a combination preaching uh, and teaching. But when I thought about the first chapter, I thought immediately about who prepared uh, these four uh, Hebrew teenagers to withstand the onslaught uh, of a Babylonian worldview and a Babylonian culture. And I think obviously the answer to that question is their parents and their grandparents, Uh, their mom and dad and their grandmother and grandfather whom they would never, ever see again, had prepared these young men to stand strong in the midst of a antichrist type of culture. Uh, You need to note sometime how the book of Revelation in particular picks up on the themes of the book of Daniel and how Nebuchadnezzar himself is indeed a type of antichrist uh, who anticipates the little horn of chapter 7 and then later the king of the north. 
uh, in chapter 11. And so you have these themes that are reverberating. And so I gave the first chapter, and, and as Dr. Shaddock pointed out, uh, these are long narrative passages. So when I talk through the book, as you can see in the commentary that you have, I think there are about 14 or 15 messages because most of the messages, I took all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 and so on. Uh, even though they're long chapters, they're self-contained units, and therefore they probably ought to be preached in that kind of a way. And so I took the entirety of chapter 1 and gave it the title, Be Strong and of Good Courage, picking up on an older Old Testament theme from the book of Joshua, Preparing our children for the nations and the countercultures of this world. Because I would argue quite strongly that is exactly what you find the four Hebrew teenagers being thrust into when you work your way through chapter 1 and their immersion into an anti-God, uh, secular, uh, paganistic culture. Now, I'm not going to read the 21 verses to save time, so let me jump in this way. Several years ago, I was talking with my colleague Bob Stein, a wonderful professor of uh, New Testament, Greek and he uh, hermeneutics. Jim referred to him a moment ago and a particular book he wrote on hermeneutics. And we were talking about uh, working among the persecuted church in the international mission field. And as we were talking, he said, well, I've learned a very interesting thing in the years that I've been going overseas, particularly in that context. He said, I often ask the question among those that are being taught, what is your favorite book or books of the Bible? And I thought, well, you know, if I were to think through and you were to ask me that question and you said, well, you got to go from an Old Testament perspective, I probably would have picked uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, I love the Psalms and they're such an encouragement uh, to our hearts and souls. If you said, well, you got to pick one from the New Testament, well, I could think of the Gospel of John, uh, the book of Romans. Philippians, book of encouragement, book of great doctrine, uh, the book that has the gospel presented so clearly. He said, very interestingly, Danny, almost without exception, their favorite books of the Bible are Daniel and Revelation. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> Calvin and, and Luther would not even write a commentary on Revelation. When my friend David Platt preached through Revelation, John Piper told him that he must have lost his mind to preach through the book of Revelation. And if you go to DesiringGod.com, there's no series through Revelation. Dr. Piper has, has never done that. And so I said to him, why in the world would they pick Daniel and Revelation, two of the most difficult books to interpret in all the Bible? And he said, because the overarching theme of both books is, in the end, our God wins. And that is a great word of encouragement to men and women that are undergoing persecution and severe opposition and great trials. And I thought, you know, that makes sense. Because Daniel and Revelation both were written in large part to make the argument our God is sovereign. Our God is sitting on his throne. And our God is working and orchestrating all that is taking place. And he indeed is going to win in the end. So persevere, be faithful, be steadfast, because God is absolutely in control. And was God absolutely in control in chapter 1? He most certainly was. And so let's just jump into that chapter. And I've divided this particular chapter into four movements, verses 1 through 3, which kind of set the stage. 
verses 3 through 7, which talk about the four teenagers being taken out of the land of Israel and taken into Babylon. Then the crisis that arises as they have to make a decision as to how far they are going to allow themselves to be assimilated into the culture in which they now find themselves. And then finally, how God indeed shows himself faithful to his faithful servants in this particular passage. So the first thing I want you to see is, number one, God may sovereignly send you to a difficult place to do what? To spread his name among the nations. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave. Now, you ought to mark that phrase, and the Lord gave. You say, why? Because it appears three strategic times in chapter 1. You see it there in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Again in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. So a key phrase in the first chapter is the idea of God acting decisively, God acting providentially, and God acting sovereignly. And so the giving of Jehoiakim. Into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar was a divine, sovereign act by God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility." Dell Davis says, well, of this chapter, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. And that's exactly what you see God doing here in this first chapter. Now, in the midst of God doing this, we also need to understand that God may bring suffering into the lives of his people. He may do so to demonstrate his sovereignty, to strengthen our faith, to show himself strong and wise, and to put his glory on display, and in this instance, to put his glory on display among the nations. Now, there's going to be obviously trials for us and difficulties for us, but what we also will see in this first chapter as we look throughout the totality of the book of Daniel is that as great as they were, As noble as they were, these four teenagers are not the hero of the book of Daniel. God is. God is the one who is working. God is the one who is active. And it is God and God alone who is to be understood as the hero of this passage. Now, note with me, first of all, God works in spite of the sins of his people. Chapter 1 again, verse 1 and verse 2. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim... Uh, King Jehoiakim was an evil king. He was nothing like his godly father, Josiah. Uh, The time period is 605 B.C., and if you've studied your Old Testament history, you know that there were three deportations from the land of Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel has already fallen in 722, 605, uh, 597, and 587. There will be three different deportations 
from the land of Judah to the land of Babylon. This is almost certainly the first one, and we're introduced to a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Without any question, the greatest Babylonian king who ever reigned. He indeed would reign from 605 B.C. all the way down to 562 B.C. And he has come down and he's attacked Jerusalem. And how did this happen? Why did this happen? Verse 2 tells us because the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. But he not only gave the king into his hands, it also adds, interestingly, and at first you would think, well, there's nothing very significant about this, but he also did so with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. As uh, we would understand the mindset of the day, this is the way of the Babylonians saying to the people of Judah, our God is a better God than your God. Our God is a stronger God than your God. And so most likely taken to the temple of Marduk, uh, the chief deity of the land of Babylon. And yet Daniel would interject with that uh, particular mindset and simply say, not so. Uh, not so. Uh, this is not the doing of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the doing of our God. He is judging his people rightly for their sin. He is judging the people rightly for their idolatries. He is judging the people rightly for their rebellion. And so what is happening is God working even in the midst of the sins of his people. But then secondly, God is also at work as he scatters his people. Verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and also of the nobility. Now, there's a backdrop that we need to understand when we read these verses, and it is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There God enters into a covenant with the Hebrew children, and he reminds them that if they obey him, he will bless them. But if they disobey him, he will curse them. And very specifically, the text says he would curse them with military defeat in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 25. And God would also curse them with deportation in verse 64. And indeed, God kept his word. So he's brought the vessels from the temple into the land and put them in the house of their pagan god. But then also there is a deportation of key individuals from the land of Israel as well. Note that the text says there in verse 3, they are both of the royal family and also of the nobility. Now this was a very strategic act on the part of the Babylonians as it would strip the nation of its best and of its brightest. We've seen the same thing happen in our own lifetime. Uh, go back and study the uh, overtaking by the communists of both Vietnam and Cambodia. Just for example, if you wore glasses, you quickly got rid of them. Why? Because people with glasses were, were usually considered to be those who would be intelligent, those who would be educated, and those were the ones that were wiped out. They wiped out the educated, they wiped out the lawyers, they wiped out the doctors, and they left behind the country in ravage. And as a result, those countries, even to this day, 
are still working to survive what took place as a result of that type of mindset. You have the same thing happening here in the book of Daniel. And so the best and the brightest are brought to Babylon. Of course, this would also benefit Babylon as well. And of course, what I would also point out is this. Though not intended by the Babylonians, it is intended by God. In fact, I see this as nothing less than a divine invasion of enemy territory by our God. As Augustine said, this is the city of God now invading the city of man. And, of course, Babylon throughout the Bible, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, almost always stands for that which is against the kingdom of God. It is the land of the Tower of Babel. Remember Genesis chapter 10? It is a land of idolatry. It is a land of false gods. It is the city and the kingdom that opposes the true God, and now it is being invaded by divine forces. It is a small incursion, no doubt about that, but an incursion nevertheless. And indeed, as you continue to follow the flow of redemptive history, you will discover that it is very significant that God sent his people into this land at this particular time. Luke will pick up on this reality in chapter 21 and verse 29 as he refers to the time of the Babylonians' takeover as the time of the Gentiles. And so we've entered into a new epoch in the life of the Hebrew people. They will be oppressed. Uh, they will be scattered. And yet the nations, because of this scattering, will have a witness in their midst. And so God may sovereignly send you to a difficult place that his name might be made known among the nations. But then number two, be prepared for the challenges non-Christian cultures will throw at you to lead you away from God. Look again at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And I like that when I teach the Bible, if there's a listing of things, I like to count them. So here we go. Number one, youth without blemish. Number two, youth of good appearance. Number three, youth skillful in all wisdom. Number four, youth endowed with knowledge. Number five, youth endowed with understanding. Number six, youth endowed with learning. And number seven, youth competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Furthermore, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, among these, and that's a note that there were many more uh, teenagers and many more of the nobility uh, and many more of the royal house than just these four, but among these were these Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all four of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, brothers and sisters, all of us have what is called a worldview. We all have a particular way of looking at life and understanding life. 
fact, pick up any good book on philosophy or apologetics, and they will have a listing of definitions, or at least a main definition of what we mean by a worldview. I've always liked the uh, definition of our former colleague, he's now in heaven, uh, but Russ Bush, who for many years was the provost here, wonderful professor, well, a tough professor of philosophy, whether he was wonderful or not, depends upon your perspective. I am curious, did any of you ever have Dr. Bush as a professor of a philosophy? Uh, you do know that you just ask him no questions in class, you don't scratch your face for fear that he might think that you were raising your hand. In fact, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. So I'm at Southwestern Seminary along with Dr. Shaddix, and uh, Dr. Bush is teaching philosophy. And if you know Dr. Bush, he always wore glasses, but he wore them down on his nose like this so he could look over them at you, but he could look down and read. And so he had begun a class uh, that semester on philosophy, and a young guy sat on the front row, and I don't know what possessed him, uh, perhaps a demon. But uh, <laughs> as soon as class got started one day, he raises his hand, and not only does he raise his hand, he says, Dr. Bush, Dr. Bush, Dr. Bush. So Dr. Bush looks at him, and he asks his question. And I think Dr. Bush gave him probably a five-word answer, which was a long answer for Dr. Bush when you were asking him a class uh, question. And then he went back to lecturing. Well, I guess the young man just didn't get it because about 10 minutes later, again, Dr. Bush, Dr. Bush, Dr. Bush. And he asked his question without even being recognized. And Dr. Bush looked at him and simply went, and he went back to lecturing. But unfortunately, this young man was socially unaware. <laughs> You've met such students, I know. And so once more, his hand goes up. And when it does, Dr. Bush takes his glasses and his pen, and he throws it down and says, let me tell you something. There are two ways that we can do this class for the remainder of the semester. One is let stupid people like you ask stupid questions that waste our time. The other is for me to lecture out of my many years of study and preparation. I think the second way is the better way, and so unless anyone disagrees, that is the way we will do class for the remainder of the semester. Do you understand? And as it says of Jesus in the Bible, from that day forward, no one durst ask him any more questions. <laughs> But Dr. Bush was a wonderful, wonderful professor of philosophy, and his definition, again, is outstanding. A worldview is that basic set of assumptions that gives meaning to one's thoughts. A worldview is the set of assumptions that someone has about the way things are, about what things are, about why things are the way that they are. Well, Daniel and his three Hebrew companions have been thrust into a completely, radically different worldview context than anything that they had ever known in their lives. It was as anti-God as it could have possibly have been. It was as secular as it could have possibly been. And in the process, they are now going to face the greatest challenges they've ever known in their entire lives to maintaining fidelity to their commitment to Yahweh, to the one true and living God, and the strategy that the Babylonians used, in many cases, very successfully in that day, is a similar strategy that Satan still uses in our own day with our own youth.
Let me show it to you very quickly. Four different movements in terms of how you can be challenged to walk away from the God that has loved you and you've been reared in terms of his understanding and challenged to go in a completely different direction. Number one, isolation. Isolation. Look again in verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. They have been transplanted from Judah to Babylon. They are now transplanted alone. As I mentioned earlier, there is no evidence at all in Daniel that any of the four ever saw their family or their friends again. They are now in a perfect Babylonian context to be what I call deconverted. Deconverted. The same type of thing that too often happens in our day and time when we send our children off as lambs to the slaughter to the secular universities and the state colleges where they are attacked with a Babylonian worldview and mindset. And so they are isolated from their family. But then note also there is the issue of indoctrination. Look at verse 4. Yes, these were youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom. These are the best of the best, and they took them aside to teach them both the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Uh, they were good-looking, without blemish, of, of good appearance. Uh, I think it even indicates that most likely, co uh, contrary to what some think, uh, they were not eunuchs. They were not made eunuchs. The text never calls any of the four of them a eunuch. Uh, they're smart, uh, skilled in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and they are blessed with leadership and interpersonal skills. They were competent to even stand at this particular time in the king's palace. And so these are ideal candidates to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5 informs us that it would be a three-year program of study. So they're going to be educated. Uh, they're going to be indoctrinated. I don't think it would be too strong to say they will be brainwashed to think in a completely different way than they've ever thought before. The University of Babylon was going to give them a first-class education in Babylonian language, in Babylonian philosophy, in Babylonian literature, in Babylonian science, in Babylonian history, and in Babylonian astrology and Religion would certainly have been a part of the curriculum as well as they would have been taught about Marduk and also the polyistic deities that dominated the ancient Near Eastern world. Dream interpretation, uh, omen reading would also have been required courses for their program of study. And as I love to say, the new age really isn't new, is it? It is as old as ancient Babylon. It's simply wrapped up in our day and time in a different package. So there's indoctrination and isolation. But then number three, there is assimilation. Look at verse 5 again. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they would be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they would be required to stand before the king. They were being enticed uh, by the delicacies of the Babylonians and the privileges of their new life. Perhaps initially, they would not have been so tempted, but over time, they would have been worn down and eventually pulled into the dark side. 
And so there's a full court program of seduction and conversion that is underway, but perhaps the most insidious of all is the fourth one, and that is confusion. In verse 6, we are introduced for the first time to the four Hebrew youths, given the names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Interestingly, all four of their names related to their relationship to the one true God, that is to Yahweh. Daniel's name means Elohim is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like Elohim. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. Now, changing names today, not a big deal. Changing names in the ancient world, a huge deal. And so they are stripped of their Judean names. They are stripped of their Hebrew names, and each of the four of them is given a Babylonian name noted there in verse 7. Now, just as an aside, in my study, uh, the commentators could not come to any type of unanimity on what the four Babylonian names meant. And so, in the commentary, I just simply say that we can't be sure as to the exact meaning but we can be sure that they were intended to honor the Babylonian gods in a similar way that their Hebrew names honored the one true and living God. And so they were no doubt intended to reorient them, to confuse them, certainly to draw them away from the one true and living God that they had worshipped virtually all of their life. And so never was it going to be now more important for these Hebrew children to be of the world, but not in the world. Which then leads us to our third movement in verses 8 through 13. Determine early in your life and heart that you will not compromise your convictions and commitments to God. And let me say that one more time. Determine early in your life and heart that you will not compromise your convictions and commitments to God. Verse 8 through verse 13, but Daniel resolved. In my Bible, it is underlined with scare quotes around it. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And there it is again. We noted a moment ago, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? I love this line. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and simply water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see." I see Psalm 1 kind of men in these four Hebrew teenagers. They are men who will not seek the counsel of the wicked, but they are those who delight in the word and in the law of the Lord. 
Furthermore, my strong suspicion is they were who they were because of the training that they had received from their parents and also their grandparents. No doubt their mom and their dad never ever envisioned that their children would be uh, would find themselves in this kind of situation and yet because they had poured their lives into them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, when the temptation faced them, they stood and they stood strong. So note several things about their uh, uh, resisting here. First of all, we should indeed resist the temptation to defile ourselves. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved... Daniel determined in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Babylon is where he would live, but Babylon would never be his home. And so like his forefather Abraham, Hebrews 11 verse 10, he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God himself. And so Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with food or drink. Now that raises a million-dollar question. What exactly is going on here? And what is there about drinking the king's wine? And by the way, though I am a total abstainer, this is not the place to try to build an argument for total abstinence with, with respect to the use of alcohol because that's not what is going on in this particular passage at all. So what is going on? Why is it that he is uh, determined that he will not defile him? What, 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 what would there be defiling uh, for him to drink of the king's wine or to eat of the king's food? And, and again, you pick up five commentaries and you'll come up with about five different answers. Uh, some have argued that it is dietary. Uh, that the food most likely was unclean for a Hebrew, and they draw from the Levitical codes in chapter 11, verses 1 through 23. Some think it may have been religious or spiritual, that the food that they were to eat had been offered, for example, to idols in some form of worship, and they draw back from De Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Some have said, no, it's just merely symbolic. It's kind of Daniel and the four uh, and the, his, his comrades' way of saying we will not buy into the worldview of the Babylonians and we will not allow his uh, way to seduce us. But I like what, again, Dale Davis said specifically in his idea on this. He calls it the defensive view. And he says, and I quote, Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. Daniel may well have thought there is a real danger here. I could get sucked up into this and neutered by it all. He recognized if Babylon, that is the world and its values, gets into you, then the show is over. And so Daniel and his friends were forced to be in Babylon, but they would not let Babylon get into them. And so they made a conscious and determined decision that they would say no to the king's food and to his wine. They resisted the temptation to defile themselves. But then secondly, we should also seek to win the favor of those in authority when possible. And this is one of the most brilliant passages, I think, in all the book of Daniel in terms of what does it mean to walk both in holiness but also to walk in wisdom. You see, some of us do the right thing. But we do the right thing in the wrong way. Uh, to be blunt, we act like donkey back ends 
when it comes to taking our stand for Jesus, which as a result completely undercuts our witness. We could learn a lot from what Daniel and his friends do here in verse 9 and verse 10. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? And furthermore, why would you have it that I would endanger my head with the king? So Daniel approaches the the steward of the eunuch, and as we're about to see, he is going to offer him a compromise. Uh, not compromising their principles, not compromising their integrity, and not compromising his assignment. His assignment is to present good-looking, healthy young men. That is his end goal. Daniel wisely, kindly, graciously, humbly approaches him with a plan that would allow him to keep his head. I, again, love the fact that that line is in there but also would allow them not to defile themselves. And so he works hard there to win the favor of those in authority. Can we always do that? No. But when we can, we should. Which then leads to number three, wisely offer an alternative solution that is a win-win scenario. Verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over him and his friends, test your servants for 10 days. Now, the 10 days may be a literal 10 days. It may be symbolic for a lengthy period of time. There's no major doctrine at stake in how we interpret and understand that. Let us be given simply vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants at that time according to what you see. So Daniel, in essence, says, put God to the test. Now you say, put y'all to the test. No, no, no. Put God to the test. We're going to trust God to honor our faithfulness. We're going to trust God to honor our devotion and our commitment to him. We're going to believe our God and trust our God, and in essence... Put our life in his hands. Brian Chapel is right. Holiness is risky business. Society may praise idealism, but it rarely tolerates living those ideals. Well, they're not only going to profess their ideas, ideals, they're going to live out their ideals. They're going to risk it all because they believe our God is worth it. Chuck Swindoll, who, by the way, has a really helpful little study guide on Daniel, uh, not great on the detailed exposition, but really well done in terms of the application. He says it like this, In a world filled with people who rebel against the divine king, it is inevitable that believers of all ages will face situations in which their convictions will be challenged. We who are parents need to prepare our children for those occasions by both teaching them God's truth and modeling integrity. And all of us who are Christians need to personally commit ourselves to living God's way regardless of the temptations to live otherwise. This is what Daniel and his friends have been taught. This is how they would live or how they would die. 
which then leads us to our fourth movement, verse 14 through verse 21. Trust God to honor your devotion and your faithfulness to him. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, and I quote, Unless there is the element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. That's pretty good. Unless there is the element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Well, there is little doubt that Daniel and his friends need faith. And they need to trust that their God indeed will honor their act of faith and the extreme risk at which they have put themselves. If they fail, it means the death of Ashpenaz. It means the death of his steward. It means the death of Daniel and his friends. But they have settled in their heart long before now, compromise on God's truth is not an option. And so what do we see? Four movements very quickly. God blessed them physically, verse 14. So he listened to them, that is the steward, in this matter. He tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh. The idea of fat doesn't mean fat like we think fat. Think muscles. Think good-looking. They, they, they were buff. They, they were trim. They were mean and lean. And so at the end of the 10 days, they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them their vegetables. So first of all, God blessed them physically. Secondly, God blessed them mentally as well. Look at verse 17 and also verse 20. As for these four youths, God gave them, third time, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Specifically, he gave Daniel understanding in all visions and in dreams. Drop down to verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, there's that same phrase again, Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And so they were better physically. They were better mentally. Thirdly, they were better spiritually. I go back again to verse 17 with reference to Daniel. He had understanding in all visions, and he had understanding in all dreams as well. Now, that sets us up for the remainder of the book. Because if there is anything in the book of Daniel that was valuable to Daniel is that Daniel could indeed understand and interpret the dreams and visions that God would give. Sometimes to him, but as you'll see next in chapter 2, to the king Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, John MacArthur, who's uh, got a good study on this particular book as well, says, and I quote, God enabled Daniel to interpret dreams and to receive visions. Visions and dreams were both a means of revelation from God, the former occurring while awake and the latter while asleep. So Daniel was gifted as a seer or a prophet. As such, he was to serve as the very vehicle of God's divine revelations. This verse then becomes the backdrop for the rest of Daniel's prophecy. And so God blessed them spiritually. And then finally... God also blessed them socially. Look at verse 18. At the end of the time, that is the three years, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and 
Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. In other words, they stood head and shoulders above everybody else. No one was found like them in any form or any fashion. They were ten times better than the magicians and the enchanters. And as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar will give all four of them key administrative posts in his kingdom. Uh, They will serve him well, and they will represent him well, although, as we will learn in chapter 3, they will not compromise their principles, even if it means for them the fiery furnace. And then verse 21 is almost given as a footnote or, or an afterthought, but not really. It simply notes, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which means what? Well, it means, first of all, Daniel would serve the Lord up until about his 85th or 90th year. It also means that when everything is said and done, Daniel will be standing when the Babylonian kingdom is long gone and in the dust. And so he would live through the entire Neo-Babylonian period, even into the reign of Cyrus. And again, John MacArthur says it very well, and I'll close with this. Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity and uncompromising character had far-reaching results. For when I see the wise men coming from the east, I think of the impact Daniel's theology must have had upon the Chaldeans' astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land. Influence that led to the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah and to the reestablishing of the nation of Israel. Influence that eventually led the wise men to come to crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. Daniel was behind the scenes of the history of the Messiah as well as the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence for through his prophecy, he in time brings homage to the one who is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who reigns forever and ever. And so, Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel, so much in each and every chapter and each and every verse. Lord, as we uh, attempt to interpret and also to teach this book, help us, Lord, to do our homework. Help us, Lord, also to approach this book with great humility, recognizing that there are some things that have crystal clear clarity. And there are other things, Lord, that I suspect will be a mystery until we are with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. So help us, Lord, to proclaim the book boldly, but also, Lord, to do it graciously and with a heart of humility, asking that the Holy Spirit would teach us every step of the way, asking that he would also help us to wisely and faithfully point to the Lord Jesus, who indeed is the hero of every book of the Bible that makes him also the hero of the book of Daniel. And this we ask and pray in his strong and saving name. Amen.